There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This episode continues our series on iconic ships, in which we ask a historian to explain why their chosen ship might be iconic, or we ask the curator of an historic ship to explain why their surviving ship deserves the title iconic. And this week, we're on episode eight of this mini-series. I can't believe we've done eight already. It's shaping up beautifully. If you haven't listened to any of these, I'd urge you all to go back through our archive of episodes and listen to them. We've had an episode on the Mary Rose, that Tudor warship which sank in battle in 1545. The Mayflower, which transported pilgrims from Plymouth to the New World in 1620. What a story that is. HMS Hood, the Mighty Hood. Certainly one of the most famous warships in history. The battlecruiser lost with very nearly all hands in 1941. The Cutty Sark, that fabulous tea clipper that still survives on the riverside in Greenwich. The light cruiser from the Second World War, HMS Belfast, another London-based historic ship and icon of the Thames Riverscape. The USS Constitution, one of the world's most iconic historic vessels, a surviving veteran of the War of 1812. I could never get over that sentence. Sometimes history is telescopic and sometimes surprisingly, astonishingly close, made real by the survival of huge and complex man-made machinery, perhaps none more so than a sailing man of war like USS Constitution. We've also included HMS Bellerophon, the Billy Ruffian, built in 1786 and such a fabulous key for following the events of the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. And today, well, today we have one of my favourites, the SS Great Britain. My favourite not least because, as a young maritime historian, the fabulous team at this magnificent historic vessel in Bristol gave me a home and still, to my frank astonishment, a job shortly after I left university. So do please enjoy this episode. I loved going back and interviewing the team, so generous with their time as always. As you listen, do bear in mind that we will be holding a vote later in the year to determine exactly which of our featured ships deserves the title of most iconic. And so to the SS Great Britain. 
Before we hear all about her from her team, here are some basic facts to help orientate you in the bewildering oceans of history. She was launched in the summer of 1843 in an extraordinary era when wooden hulls were giving way to iron and sail was giving way to steam. She was designed by none other than Isambard Kingdom Brunel, one of the most gifted engineers in history who turned the full beam of his genius into maritime affairs in this period, culminating in the SS Great Britain. I always imagine her as the creation of a cartoon mad genius like Megamind. So jaw-dropping were Brunel's innovations. I would have adored being at his early design meetings. You're going to do what? would have been the refrain time and time again, along with plenty of muttering. She was to be a luxurious passenger ship, the likes of which the world had never seen before. The largest vessel afloat, the longest vessel in the world. She was to be made of iron, fitted with a steam engine of a thousand horsepower, the most powerful ever used at sea. She was to be driven with a propeller rather than a paddle wheel, the proven and established technology. She was also fitted with six masts. It's not surprising that at her launch, she was described as the greatest experiment since creation. Wow, that is some quote. There's no one better to tell us about her than two members of the team of the SS Great Britain, who invited me to the fabulous dockyard in Bristol where she was built and remarkably, where she still lies. I spoke with Joanna Thomas, maritime curator, and Nicola Grahamslaw, the ship's conservation engineer, who between them have a fairly serious job to do, keeping Brunel's magnificent creation of a ship ship-shape for future generations. And they have to do all of that with the ghost of Brunel himself peering over their shoulder, checking their work, checking their calculations. I'm not sure I'd like that very much. I was very impressed with their steely demeanour in the face of history itself. So here are Joanna and Nicola. Ah, oh, a bit of shade. <laughs> right, here we are. We're standing underneath the stern of the SS Great Britain and it's magnificent, isn't it? I've always been amazed by the gilding and I quite like the cornucopias, the, the, the fruit coming out of the horns on the side. They're amazing. So um, tell me about this ship. Well, the Great Britain is now in the dock where she was launched in 1843. It's amazing to have her back in the place where the ship was constructed, launched from. Uh, she was launched in 1843 as the very first iron-hulled, screw-propelled steamship specifically built as an ocean-going ship. So she broke any boundaries of engineering, ship design that you can think of by the 1840s. Um, she is an absolutely beautiful ship what you would probably call beautiful lines, beautiful sleek lines with a clipper bow. Um, the largest ship in the world when she was launched and she was specifically designed to carry first class passengers to New York. So luxuriously um, decorated cabins. Um, so, so it's state of the art, an engineering marvel and, and masterpiece when she was launched. Yeah, I mean, it's worth thinking about just the, the huge number of technical innovations that have gone into this. We're, we're standing here, we're looking at the stern of the ship and in some respects it looks like a wooden stern. So we've got these very characteristic stern gallery windows which yeah. you might associate with say an 18th century ship. But this is, it, it's, it's made of iron, yes. <laughs> which yes. is completely, so on the one hand you've got that and then below us here we're looking through this glass um, roof. I mean, we'll go on to talk about this, but one of the things about the SS Great Britain is, in terms of being iconic, is, is of course that um, it, what, what you guys have done with the, the preservation and the conservation. So you can see through the sea 
to the great propeller. So yeah. it's fascinating, isn't it? This this mixture of periods and styles. Yes, I think I think the. The, obviously the famous engineer isn't by Kingdom Brunel who was involved in her construction and her design. He very much was aware not just of engineering and pushing the boundaries of engineering and building the biggest ship in the world but also I think he was very much aware of design and pleasing the eye and pleasing the public so this was not just a ship built to break boundaries and to incorporate new construction technologies and new materials in shipping. She was also very much a ship that was if you like a floating palace, you had to appeal to high society. They were the people who were going to travel on the ship. So this is also a showpiece. Yeah, um, it's a showpiece for, for for British engineering, isn't it? But yes. it, it's not certainly at this at the early stage of its career. Not a, it's not a ship for the people. It's not a ship for everyone, is it? It's a real top end thing. Very much so. It's first class only cabins. Um, only high society would, society would have been able to travel on board the ship. She is called the Great Britain. She is anything that makes Britain great. That's what Brunel basically wanted to signify with that name and with the design of the ship. Mm, interesting kind of what that suggests about Brunel's perception of society <laughs> at the time. Um, we've just moved around to the starboard side now and um, we've got a, a beautiful view from the, the, uh, the stern quarter and there are there are masts but how, how many are there? There are so many masts <laughs> there are six. Yes so the Great Britain was obviously a steamship but uh, for her time she was designed as a sail assist steamship so her rigging uh, consists of six masts. She was the world's very first six-masted schooner and her rigging was actually specifically designed to work alongside the engine. So the rig is not just there to help out in case the engine breaks down, it's very much um, designed to work alongside the engine to propel the ship forward as fast as possible. Yeah. And what was the sail plan? So you have uh, six masts, all four and half rigged. You have square sails on the main mast, which is mast number two, but yeah, effectively a schooner rig. Yeah. It's like Brunel was trying to break the rules with everything, wasn't he? I mean, yes. it wasn't just the engine, it wasn't just a propeller, it wasn't just the construction. Anything. I mean, you know, the Great Britain was initially uh, designed as a paddle steamer. So it was halfway through construction when Brunel saw this new technology of the screw propeller um, that pa Francis Pettit Smith uh, was showing off in Bristol on a different vessel. And he saw this new technology and thought, wow, this looks incredible. So he ran long tests to actually test the screw propeller. And then he had to convince his funders and the company directors that, um, you ha that, that he had to change his new ship halfway through construction from paddles to screw propeller. So Brunel was not one for just designing something and then going with it. He was constantly working on it, constantly tinkering on it, and constantly on the lookout for new technologies. Yeah, I mean, well, he'd, he'd obviously, not necessarily mastered, but he'd had a go at screw, uh, um, at paddle, paddle ships as before, hadn't he? Well, yes, he f initially the, the Great Western Steamship Company uh, launched the Great Western, the first ship, and she was a traditional wooden paddle steamer. I mean, she was the largest ship again in the world when she was launched, but, very much a traditional wooden paddle steamer and that was the first ship that Brunel was involved in with, with in, in the construction so I think he kind of tried to have a go at steamships initially and then got his confidence during the construction of that first ship and then had a proper go and was fully involved with the Great Britain. Great Britain and then you had the Great Eastern as well. Which is afterwards she was launched in London um, in 1859 uh, Brunel's third large ship and obviously there, was, there were huge problems with the launch of the Great Eastern. It took them several months to launch her 
Um, she was again huge, I mean the largest ship in the world um, for many, many years. I think she was only surpassed just at the turn of the 20th century, a huge mammoth of a ship that he yeah. built, um, both paddles and screw propeller actually. Um, but again, of iron construction, so he continuously tried to push the boundaries and, and build something new. So we've got the Great Britain then, so that sits in between the Great Western and the Great Eastern. Yes. And uh, she's absolutely magnificent. So starts off as this top end, first class only passenger ship. What happens next? So the ship was then tinkered about a little bit, changed slightly, the rigging was changed to, to just improve a little bit to work alongside her engines. She was reduced from six to five masts and then she was really primed and set and, and primed to fulfil that promise of fast transatlantic um, communication and transport to New York. Um, and then disaster struck. After only four voyages to New York, she ran aground in Dundrum Bay on the coast of Northern Ireland in 1846 and that was the end of her North, Atlant uh, North Atlantic uh, career. So, so short. Yes, so she only made those four voyages and she never traveled with a full complement of passengers. Um, she was so new that Lloyds refused to register her because they were just so unsure about <laughs> uh, the technology. Mm. They didn't know how to assess that. Um, but she was finally ready to fully embrace that potential that she had and it was cut short by a tragic navigational error. Yeah, so she's stuck on the, the sand at Dundrum Bay. Is she damaged yes. by that? I mean, she's she, there for quite a long time, isn't she? She was there for pretty much a year. Yeah. Um, she was stuck, stuck fast on, on the sands, uh, not damaged. She was still uh, sound in her hull and everything, but she was just stuck fast and they couldn't pull her off the sands. She, she weathered the winter gales on the coast of Northern Ireland and we believe that she only survived that year on, in Dundrum Bay because of her sound construction, because of her iron hull. If she had been made of wood, she would have been smashed to pieces in that year. So she's a real survivor. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, they eventually get the ship off the sand uh, Dundrum Bay, which is a, a kind of an engineering achievement in itself, isn't it? They say to Brunel and they say, we've got a serious problem. Very much so. I think there's a lovely letter uh, written by Brunel where he um, just can't believe that the company doesn't get a move on and actually saves this ship. And he writes this lovely thing about going to visit the ship in Dundrum Bay and she's just lying on the beach like a useless saucepan. So something should be done to protect her. He constructs a temporary breakwater to co cover the stern of the ship so that it takes the brunt of the waves and the wind coming in. Um, but yes, that's, that's sadly the end of her North Atlantic career. Yeah. So uh, uh, how is she then repurposed? So by the, she gets salvaged, um, but it basically breaks the company. So that to pay for the fund, uh, to pay the for the salvage of the Great Britain from Dundrum Bay, they have to sell off the first ship, the Great Western. The company goes bankrupt, and they have to sell the Great Britain as well. Um, she is then sold to Gibbs Brighton Company, who are actually uh, partially already invested in her during the Great Western Steamship Company days, um, and they repurpose her for the Australia run. So a completely different new career in, in that she's now not transporting high society people to New York uh, to visit family, do business trips, go shopping possibly. I don't <laughs> know if that was a thing in, uh, at the time, but um, she then carries hundreds and hundreds of emigrants to Australia. So it's a, a, a different time of her life, not what Brunel intended her for, 
but very much still making a huge impact. It proves to be the longest part of her working life and hugely successful, even though she's no longer the, the, the luxurious passenger liner on the North Atlantic. She then um, fulfills that new promise of carrying thousands and thousands of people to Australia. Okay. Primarily under sail because it's yes. so, so far. So yes. I think, you know, the, the, the ships moved on from the, uh, you know, the, these early engineering breakthroughs. Let's go back and talk about those a little bit. About mm -hmm. Let's talk about her propeller because it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> looking thing. It's not what you might imagine a propeller to look like. No, her propeller has got six blades and actually it has been tested by modern engineers and they say it is as efficient as a modern propeller. So <laughs> Brunel did his work um, and um, it's a beautiful thing to look at. Um, it was made of uh, iron at the time as well, so it actually only lasted for one or two voyages before um, the blades started shearing off on, on the voyages. But that was not down to the design of the propeller, that was just uh, mater the material that couldn't keep up with Brunel's designs. No. Had it been made of steel, it probably would have lasted a lot longer. Yeah. What do we know about the engine? Why was that important? So the engine was about a thousand nominal horsepower. It was the largest marine engine ever built by that point. Um, it was actually Brunel's father, Mark Brunel, who designed the engine. Um, but as such, it wasn't a groundbreaking engine um, at the time. It was just, um, it was it nicely fitted into the ship. It actually, uh, the pistons actually go face downward. So it's like in a V-shape facing ah. downward. Uh, it's, it's fascinating how Mark Brunel constantly rears his head in the story of, of the wonderful Isambard. Very um, much, yeah. So let's go back to the, being a, a sailing ship on the Australia route, an emigrant ship. And I've always liked the idea of, um, uh, of ships being an agent for change. So mm. bear with me, but this is interesting. So you've got all these people who, write, who get on a ship and then they go somewhere miles away and it takes them ages to get there. And by the time they've arrived, they're actually different people. They've experienced the world in a different way. And there's some fab, one of the things I love about this museum is the carved graffiti that survives. Yes, so there are um, carved uh, deck planks and sheet uh, sheathing planks um, that, were, that were actually found in the forecastle, which were the crew accommodation. And they're carved with their graffiti, their names, and we are able to link the graffiti to the names on the crew agreements. So it's absolutely fascinating thing that we have, not just the names of the people who worked on the ship on a piece of paper, we actually have their signature carved into the very fabric of the ship. Yeah, get me off. It's a bit like being in prison, people <laughs> writing on the walls. I've always, always thought that. Actually, I mean, funnily enough, that the, there is some remarkably similar graffiti in the SS Great Britain to that in York Jail. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, this, the, the, it does really make you think of just how influential this ship would have been mm. on the lives of, of so many people. Yes, I mean, she was, if you think about it, on the Australia run, she was a sailor, uh, she was a steam-assisted sailing ship, so it still had a, um, an engine and, and her screw propeller, but she was carrying up to 700 passengers now by this mm. point. Um, there was an extra spar deck added on top just to maximise capacity to carry as many people as possible on each voyage. And the voyage to Melbourne from Liverpool would have taken them around 60 days. So you are at sea for 60 days with people you've never met before in very cramped conditions. And in effect, this is... Um, a floating city. This is almost a microcosmos of, of mid-19th century society of people travelling together. You have first-class passengers travelling. We've got famous people like um, 
Anthony Trollope, the writer, travelling out to Australia to, to uh, visit his son, who was a sheep farmer there. Um, and then you have people from all walks of life, Scotland, Ireland, from Europe, everybody travelling together in very cramped conditions, two months at sea you're not the same person when you get to the no, other end. Yeah. A really important part, probably the most important part of, part of her life as a ship, I think. Um, yeah. uh, then what happens after Australia? So by 1876, the ship becomes uninsurable as a passenger liner or as a passenger uh, vessel. She's had a very long life. She's gone to Australia for over 20 years. She circumnavigated the globe 32 times. Um, she had an incredible run at, at that, but she's old by that point, um, not, not really in the condition to carry people anymore. So, so you just said something, I've kind of glossed over that, circumnavigated the globe 32 times? Yes. I, I didn't <laughs> know that, that's she unbelievable. She literally did that. She went, left Liverpool, went round Africa, the Cape of Good Hope, to Melbourne, Australia, left there, crossed the Pacific, rounded Cape Horn and went up through the South wow. Atlantic. So yes, that was one voyage to Australia was a circumnavigation of the globe. Oh. <laughs> well, she's enjoying a well-earned rest now <laughs> yes, yeah. in Bristol. But, but yeah, so she, once she is no longer insurable as a passenger vessel, she then gets sold off again after a few years and is actually converted to a sailing ship. Yep. Um, so engines stripped out, all pomp and luxuriousness gone, and she carries uh, coal from South Wales to San Francisco. So she starts, at, she starts as this luxurious steamship, which relies on sailing ships carrying coal to all corners of the globe. Um, and ends oh, the up, irony. Uh, yes, and ends up as a sailing ship carrying coal for other steamships. So not the most glamorous of endings, but she had a good go at it. Um, and she was damaged, then damaged after only two voyages, she was damaged in a storm trying to round Cape Horn, had to put into the Falkland Islands, where she then was sold off as an insurance loss. So um, we get to this amazing bit of the story where the SS Great Britain, with all of the magnificent history behind her, is, is just kind of abandoned as a hulk yes, in, so, in the Falkland Islands. Yes, I mean, she's used as a floating warehouse. She's sold off as an insurance loss, but continues her working life, if you like, uh, not at sea, but afloat in Port Stanley Harbour. Um, and they, they use her as a floating warehouse to store wool and coal. Um, and until she then finally was just so far gone that um, she was in danger of sinking and blocking Stanley Harbour. So in 1937, she was then finally towed out to Sparrow Cove, just around the corner from Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands, and she was scuttled there on a sandbank. Hmm. And that was that, you would think. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, 94 years, I hear from Nicola, 94 years. Yes. Um, and then someone, decided to bring her back yes so we have um, uh, the infamous letter the naval architect Ewan Corlett um, wrote his letter to the Times newspaper in 1967 saying if we are saving all these historic ships the most iconic should be saved as well and that is Brunel's SS Great Britain she's just how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Rotting away in the Falkland Islands at the moment. Can we not do something about it? And that letter to the Times triggered what then followed over the next few years. Um, and a team went down, well, Ewan Corlett himself went down to the Falkland Islands and in surveyed. In the 70s? In, in uh, the late 60s, so in 18, uh, sorry, 1968 or and 1967. He went down to the Falkland Islands and surveyed the ship and found that she was actually starting to hog. So she was laying on this sandbank, sli- sandbank slightly on her starboard side and the sand was starting to wash away from underneath her at the bows and, and at the stern and there was a huge crack developing on her starboard side. So she was starting to, yeah. to break in two. For those of you who don't know, hogging is to kind of arch the back in the, like a cat almost. Yes, exactly. So she's starting to zag, sag. So the, the, the two sag ends, at either end, yeah. Yes, the two ends are sagging. <laughs> and, um, and so she's starting to break apart. But he says with a lot of confidence that if we do this now, we can salvage the ship. Hmm. And they do. I mean, the, the, the photographs are unbelievable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it was, it was, I don't know, it might have been a completely foolhardy uh, undertaking. I'm not sure it would happen today, but in 1970, they, they thought they could do it. Yeah. Um, and so a team went down to the Falkland Islands, a team of British divers with the support of the Royal Navy. And they had a German uh, salvage company from Hamburg. Um, who had a pontoon large enough, so a floating platform large enough, because they knew that the, the Great Britain wouldn't have been able to cross the Atlantic to Bristol mm. uh, on, her own, on her own bottom, so she wouldn't have been able to float all that way. But they, they um, planned to basically get a submergible pontoon, uh, refloat the ship in the Falklands, put the pontoon underneath the ship, and then raise the pontoon out of the water to carry the ship home to Bristol. Yeah, and back back 
back she comes. Yes. And, you know, the, the photographs of people wave, flag waving, and uh, it, it's it's amazing. Yes, so she comes back into Bristol. On and let's, go, let's go back to what we were talking about right yeah. at the beginning. It's not just anywhere. She's come back to the place that yes. she was built. Yes, so I think that is what makes the Great Britain in this place here in Bristol so incredibly special, that we have such a, a hugely strong sense of place in that this is the dockyard that was specifically constructed to build this ship. So this dockyard wouldn't be here without this ship and the ship wouldn't be here without the dockyard. And she's here in the dockyard where she was constructed. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's absolutely incredible that we, we are able to have her here in this place. Like a hand in a glove. Yes. <laughs> Fits absolutely beautifully. And um, I mean, there are so many different chapters to her history, which is what I find fascinating about it. But I think we should move on now and explore you know what happened next how we, we get from the SS Great Britain being back here to this this magnificent museum so we're going to chat with someone else thank you very much Nicola thank you so much for talking to us about you know you did tell me a little story about mattresses what, what, what's going on with the mattresses let's start with those um, so this is about how the um, ship actually came to be refloated um, and uh, as Joanna said um, Dr. Corlett, when he surveyed the ship, concluded that um, it, it would be possible to refloat her, but really only just. It was a, a battle against time at this stage, and he estimated that probably there were only a, only a few years left before um, she was not able to be salvaged at all. Um, and one of the issues was that uh, during her time as a floating warehouse, a large hole had been cut in her side mm. um, to allow her to be loaded and unloaded. Mm. Um, and combined with the hogging, which um, we, we've also talked about, that meant that a large crack had opened up in the starboard side of the ship. So to get the ship afloat in the first place was no mean feat. They had to send divers underneath the water um, to um, plug up, first of all, the scuttling holes. Um, but secondly, they had to find a way to um, to kind of bodge a repair on this crack um, with the materials they had on hand. And so the way that they did that is they put a message out on the local radio in the Falkland Islands appealing to any locals who might have spare unwanted old mattresses that the divers could then use to repair this crack. Um, and it worked. They, they, were, they were then able to pump the water out of the ship and to get her back afloat so that they could then manoeuvre the pontoon underneath the ship. Yeah. I do love the idea of... Uh, people being posed with engineering problems <laughs> which Brunel himself would have solved um, at, you know as it kind of continues and I think that's one of the lovely stories of the SS Great Britain is that every turn you guys have been faced with um, significant engineering challenges and have, have, have come up trumps so I mean, the next plan you get her in the dock and um, and then and then someone says oh I know what what we'll do is put a glass ceiling on the dock, put some water on top so it looks like she's afloat. However, you can walk underneath. What a brilliant idea. Well, what a brilliant idea indeed. But in reality, it took over 30 years before that became a reality. So the ship um, came back. And in fact, when she came through Bristol, um, there's this really iconic moment on her way um, into the city uh, where she passed for the only time ever underneath uh, Brunel's other Bristol icon, the Clifton Suspension Bridge, hmm. which of course wasn't completed until after his death. Oh, I see. So yes, that's yes. the only time when the SS Great Britain would have been underneath the suspension bridge. So uh, to me, um, and there are, there are a few um, 
really great photos of that moment. To me, that's a really iconic moment. Um, and the uh, residents of Bristol came out in their droves to see the ship, as you've already talked about, um, and in fact scattered rose petals from the bridge down oh, onto the lovely. ship as she passed under. Um, and then there was a two week or so wait once she got back into the city, um, because to get her into the, the dry dock, uh, required the very highest of spring tides um, and it just so happened that the date that that spring tide was going to happen was the 19th of July which is exactly the same date that the ship was launched. No I don't believe it. Absolutely true, <laughs> absolutely true. So, so the ship actually came into Bristol a fortnight before that um, and had to sit and wait um, kind of up there at the, um, towards oh, the... Um, historical entrance. poetry. Absolutely, so on the ship's <laughs> birthday was the day when the tide um, was at its highest spring level and she could finally be manoeuvred into the Great Western Dry Dock. Um, but at the time, that, that wasn't necessarily the long-term plan for the ship. In fact, there wasn't really a long-term plan for the ship. Um, there was some, uh, some idea that perhaps she might be better in London, um, where she would get enough visitors to um, keep her financially viable. Um, but in Bristol, during her first few months, um, she was attracting over 2,000 visitors a day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, that's as many as we get on the busiest weekend of the year yeah. now. So she was really, really popular. Um, but even, even with that happening, um, it was a, the, the project was run mostly by volunteers and had a bit of a hand-to-mouth existence over the next couple of decades, um, where they were, I mean, often people who work in conservation say it's like being on a treadmill. Um, so they're trying to keep the hull of the ship from degrading um, while also keeping her safe for visitors. Um, and the group of people who were doing that um, were mostly volunteers, the majority volunteers, um, and they were very well qualified, um, but certainly not as curators or as conservators. Um, so their experience was in looking after um, modern ships or still working ships. So um, from the perspective of the hull, they looked after the ship much as they would have looked after a, a still working ship. Mm. So she was pressure washed, um, and all of the corrosion products were removed from her, um, and then she was dried, she was um, flame dried, um, and then various, the, all of the various paints available at the time, lead, lead paint, etc., were applied um, to try and keep the elements out. But because the iron was um, so, such an early example of these wrought iron plates, um, it had lots of impurities, lots of inclusions, um, and so the corrosion was literally happening from the inside out. So whatever coating they were applying would just come straight off again. Ah. Yeah. What a challenge. Mm. Um, and then, so then by the mid-1990s, it was estimated that um, without some kind of large-scale intervention, um, the ship would be structurally unsafe for visitors ah. within 25 years. Yeah. So that was, when, that was when the SS Great Britain the SS Great Britain project knew that something had to really dramatically change. Yeah, something significant yeah. to allow people to come on because, you know, the, 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 the visitors and the tourists are the, are the lifeblood of ships like this. You don't have people paying to come and see them, then there's, there's, exactly. there's no hope at and all. Even uh, like money aside, what, what's the point in putting all of this effort into um, bringing something this beautiful back into her home to create this, um, you know, really significant, this historic combination of ship and dry dock, yeah. um, if nobody can appreciate that and nobody can learn from it? Uh, was, and, uh, there, was there a, a huge money-raising money efforts to, to get to the next stage? The, so the, the SS Great Britain project were, had reached this point um, in, it, in its life um, just as the national, what's now known as the National Lottery Heritage Fund was in its infancy um, and they put together uh, an 
enthusiastic but uh, not particularly well informed application to the lottery um, and you know as, as I said before they were um, many of them were experts in their field but their field was not um, object conservation their field was not um, nothing curatorial um, so the lottery saw this uh, application and um, decided instead of awarding them a a grant to restore the ship. Instead, they were going to award them a smaller grant to employ a full-time curator. Um, and at that point um, was, was the kind of opening of the next chapter of the SS Great Britain's life. So um, reluctantly, the engineers handed over the ship, uh, so to speak, to this curator whose job it was um, to figure out a sustainable long-term future for the ship. And when was it all complete? I mean, here we are in this museum now. I mean, I, I do know that it's an, it's a, an ever ongoing process, but that it was, um, was it 2000 that the, um, um, so absolutely. the museum opened? It, it never stopped and it has never stopped, but the, um, the kind of main body of the lottery funded works happened between uh, 1997 and 2005 um, over that period. And that involved um, research at Cardiff University. Um, so. The, um, the kind of main, uh, the main thing behind the degradation, there are, there are several things all, all um, coming into play here. Um, first of all, you've got the fact that the ship in the dry dock um, is under a different set of forces to a ship afloat. So a ship afloat is designed to take this um, uniform, kind of even compressive load all around the hull. But once you um, get her into the dry dock, you've got parts that were not designed to be in tension, which are suddenly in tension for the very long term. So that's not great news. Um, but then also, as we've said, the really aggressive um, chloride accelerated corrosion of the um, old and quite impure wrought iron. Um, and that was, the, that was the thing that really needed to stop. Um, so there was no prospect of the ship surviving um, while this aggressive corrosion was happening um, on the lower part of the hull. Um, and the research at Cardiff University um, showed us that um, basically, if you want to stop corrosion, you have to remove either the salt, the water or the oxygen. Um, and the only one of those three things that it was practical to remove was the water. Um, and the research at Cardiff University showed us that 20% relative humidity, um, which is about the dryness of the Arizona desert, um, is what would be required to keep the ship from corroding any further, so to keep her structurally yeah. safe. There's your challenge. You've yes. got to create the Arizona desert in Bristol. You have to create an, <laughs> essentially an aircraft boneyard in the dry dock in Bristol because it's, this, it's exactly the same principle as the US military storing their metal um, in the Arizona desert. Right. Um, and that's the reason they do it, to, how, to stop corrosion. And how was that done? Um, well, as you can see from the size of the ship, to do that on, um, to put a, a building around the whole ship would have been um, not only practically very difficult, but also it would have been a terrible shame and a terrible waste yes. because she is such a, an important part of the Bristol skyline. Um, and I'm sure a lot of Bristolians would agree that the city is just not the same without, them, without these masts pointing up into the skyline. Yeah. Um, so what the engineers did was they devised a way to focus the dehumidification on only the parts of the ship's hull that needed it the most. Um, so that all of the parts of the iron which would have been soaked in that salt water for the time when she was at sea, the time when she was working. Um, so we've got the outside of the hull underneath the waterline, um, but we've also got the inside of the hull, and that actually comes a little way above the waterline. Um, but primarily, it's below the waterline. Those are the parts where the, um, the most chloride has built up in the metal, so that's the part where the corrosion is at its most aggressive. Um, and by doing that, that was the only way, by uh, forming this glass seal, so for, 
for anyone who hasn't seen the ship in the flesh, as it were, um, there's what we have is we've got a glass plate which is at the level of the waterline um, and then we've got a thin layer of water on top of the glass plate um, and that acts as insulation um, so that's not just there for display the glass plate is there to seal off the level um, of the dry dock um, and the water is there to add a layer of insulation um, and then the thermodynamics there are therefore just about feasible to get the, the part of the ship underneath the waterline down to that relative humidity of 20%, which is as dry as the Arizona desert. Yeah. And it's only by closing the dry dock off at um, the waterline level that that was even possible because it's a big space to dehumidify, even, even, um, even when we're not worrying about the top sides of the ship. Yeah. And so what are the, the, kind of the day-to-day challenges now of keeping everything just so? Uh, where do I start? Um, so today the dehumidifiers are um, still the same ones that were installed in the mid 2000s um, but today everything is computer controlled, everything's got um, little sensors on it um, and everything's connected to um, what we would call the, the internet of things, that's the kind of techie term for it um, and actually that's been really useful over the last year or so because it means that I can actually sit in my house at my kitchen table um, and I can see what's going on with uh-huh. the dehumidifiers. So the work that we've done over the last um, two or three years to get all that set up has been really instrumental in getting us through the last um, one to two years. Remote curating. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so we've got all of those conditions. Curating by Zoom. We've got, we've got all of those temperatures and humidities going into each element of the, of the system um, and, and through that we can then analyse what's going on. Um, and we can make sure that it's running um, as effectively as possible. And we've also done some work over the last few years to um, just to make it a bit more reliable. Um, so that then reduces the amount of time that our technical services team spend tinkering with the various bits and pieces, um, which then frees us up to look at what we're going to do next. Yeah. And, you know, inside the ship as well, they've got the interpretation of it, which is so clever, um, looking at the different, the different periods of the ship's life. So you didn't choose to, to just do one, one moment in its life, but, um, but so many. Uh, and that's, I think, why I would urge everyone to come and, come and see the ship. Absolutely. You can, you can look at these extraordinary um, innovations in, in, in curating, but also, also in, in interpretation. The interior of the ship is, is quite a clever hybrid. So from, from where we're standing now, the exterior of the ship, um, she, is, she is dressed to look as close as possible, um, as close as we could get her as possible to the painting that we have of her launch. So this is what she would have looked like, um, assuming that painting is accurate, on the day of her launch. But inside the ship, um, she is um, dressed more as she would have been on the Australia run, which, as, as you've just said, is a different, is a different part of her life, although um, on board she's a bit less cramped than she would have been in the Australia run. So a, a bit of a hybrid between the two, and again, also with a replica of the original engine. Um, but every detail on board um, is authentic. So everything, every detail is taken from um, a passenger diary yeah. or a passenger letter that is in our collection. Um, so we haven't made any of it up. Everything, everything comes from a real passenger experience that you see on board yeah. the ship. And you know, with the Brunel Institute here as well, you've got these amazing resources for people to come and find out more about, about Brunel, about, um, about shipbuilding, about Bristol. Um, about the whole maritime history. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful place. I, I worked here for a little bit of time and, and helped out with the interpretation, I suppose, in uh, the early 2000s. It's still something I'm very proud of. Um, thank you very much for showing me around today. I absolutely loved it. No problem, thank you for coming.
Well, thank you very much for listening. Please make sure you go back and listen to all of our iconic ships episodes. And do, of course, explore the rest of the episodes of the Mariner's Mirror podcast. There is some really wonderful stuff there. My favourite episode so far being the one on the music of the Arctic whalers that is being rediscovered, saved and performed by Morris Henderson, a musician in Shetland. You can find all of those episodes and so much more on the Society for Nautical Research's website. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...at snr.org.uk. Do please also check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page where there's some wonderful, innovative material bringing the maritime past to your eyes in ways you will have never seen before, I guarantee it. Most recently, in our use of artificial intelligence to bring ships' figureheads to life. Best of all, please join the Society. It doesn't cost very much, and the money you donate will help support this podcast, will help publish the Mariner's Mirror quarterly journal, it will help preserve our maritime heritage, but best of all, don't tell anyone, if you're a member, you get to apply to come to our annual dinner on nothing less than the gun deck of Nelson's HMS Victory. Now there's an iconic ship for you. <laughs>